from the house overlooking the Bates Motel, it's the IGN Digigods. So please welcome two men who want to forget what they saw in room 237, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. See what he did there, Mark? Uh, I'm on board. Hold on. Hold on. I'll put my mic on. Corey, who told us that one? That done were wrote wit by Stuart Moncure, writ, who wrote writ that. Blip, blip, battery, low. <laughs> nice. I didn't have my microphone on. That's how professional we are. I started the show. Didn't oh, even have my microphone on. Oh, we're supposed to be professional on. now? Yes, I, we are. I didn't realize that. Fantastic. Oh, Mark, how was your week? Okay, uh, that's good. Wait, so, I, I didn't tell you what on. I bought. Now, I, now I, I have not made anything Man. in a few weeks because I gained 10 pounds. I'm trying to lose it. Did you really? I did. You know what? You didn't gain it in your face. Thank you. But I did gain 10 pounds. Okay, where? Where'd you put it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hello, ladies. <laughs> no, I gained 10 pounds. I'm trying to take it off. I lost about seven of them, so I'm not baking until it's all gone. Okay. However, I did buy something. That yeah. you don't know what it is. I'm going to show you what it is that I bought. Actually, mm-hmm. I bought a lot of this. I'll just show you the one. Yes. And then you'll be very impressed. Good. Okay, so I'm going to get up now. Yeah. I'm going to go get the one thing that I bought. I bought many of these, but I'll just show you the one. Do I get to start uh, talking about KidVid? Yes, and then I will okay. surprise you. Okay. So I'm going to blow through some KidVid because uh, it's time for me to talk about what I will and will not let my daughter watch. And uh, for starters, Adventure Time, I'm sorry to all of our fans. I still don't get this thing. It's di- I, I, I realize that there's a cleverness to it and that there's kind of a, an originality to it. But the artwork creeps me out. It just creeps me out. I can't. I just, I get, I break out in hives just every time the things start moving. It just, it's really difficult for me to watch. But that being said, Adventure, Adventure Time, the suitor, my goodness. Yeah. Look at you. All clad, copper core. I bought right. The se- I bought the seven piece. Right. So I have this. I have a stock pot. Good. I have, I have a ten inch sauce. Uh, ten inch. Uh, uh, you know. Very a, nice. A, a pan. Good man. And uh, and since it was a seven piece. Well so done. Exciting. And then. You've joined the all clad club. And all clad copper core. Yes. And then with a thirty five dollar gift certificate I got from Sir Latav, I'm yeah. going to buy the eight inch. A frying pan. I'll tell you, I, and make sure that you have uh, Barkeeper's Friend on hand. Because Barkeeper's Friend is the best thing for all clad. You will make those, you, you, you give those things, if those things wind up with any kind of, you know, staining. Oh, you mean run, this? There you go, baby. In fact, I've already used it. This is it, so exciting it, it, It's for amazing, us. right? It makes you know it, every, it, it looks, it makes everything look just spotless. You know what really annoyed me is that uh-huh. I haven't even used these yet. I just got it. Yeah. And I go into the kitchen one day. I, can, can people hear me? Yeah, they can hear you. Okay. I go to the kitchen, yeah. and this the uh, top to this sauté pan yeah. has like gray spots all over it. Yeah, it happens. And I haven't even used it yet. Yeah. So I freaked out because no, you know, no, no. all that copper core is expensive. Stuff takes it right off. Takes it right off. Gone. It's amazing, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Love it. Best friend. It, it really is your friend, barkeeper's friend. Uh, anyway, Adventure Time, The Suitor, 16 episodes. Uh, knock yourselves out, Cartoon Network people, because I still just I cannot be on board. 
you know, PBS Kids. I like the stuff they do. My daughter's on down with it. She's totally down with it. Uh, Arthur makes a movie. Uh, she's not quite down with Arthur. She doesn't quite get Arthur. I think it freaks her out a little bit. She doesn't know what what species he is. Uh, but you know, Arthur uh, Arthur is definitely on the. Uh, on the list, she looks. Yes. This is the lid for the stockpot. Yes. By the I way, know. this is real, folks. We're not making this up. I'm no, no, it's true. This. Yeah. Because I don't really give a crap about the kid bit. Yeah. See all these, see all these gray spots yeah, on no. it. Yeah, Exactly. Now, do you know what that is, by the way? Well, it's it's moisture. Yeah, moisture. Cre- it's it's like it's like uh, air vapor condensation. Now, here's the thing. I see. Now, this is for real. Yeah. This has gray spots all over. Sure. Right? Yes. Julia's what I'm about to do right now while you're, you're talking about that. It's gonna be like a, it's, it's like gonna be in, like an infomercial. Yes. Like, I'm by the time it. I'm done talking about KidVid, you will have used Barkeeper's friend That's to right. make it bright, shining That's right. new. I'll be right back. You're like that. You're like the guy that used to do Sham Wow, who died of a cocaine overdose. By the way, wait. Why don't you tease the interview we have later in the show? Oh, about that we got an interview. We got an interview. We got an interview with a longtime friend of the podcast. Somebody, anybody who's been a longtime listener will know this name. Big name in the world of DVD, got some big things going on in his career, and uh, we're gonna—it's very exciting. So we got—we got a big one. This is gonna be a—this is a very special episode. Very special episode, revisiting an old—an old friend. Uh, PBS Kids uh, also. Uh, Martha speaks. Martha's superhero adventures. Martha an is an old course- friend who, for many many years. Worked with Ridley Scott. Yeah, well, you're giving it all away now. All of the well, we're trying to tease it. Yes, we did. Ridley did all. Has the directed extras. his own. Has directed his own film. Hang on. Yes, he uh, was the premier DVD supplement That's producer. Right. All Ridley Scott's films. Said, yeah. Right. Right. But it's with Ridley. Right. Finally. Finally. After all these years all of apprenticeship and doing DVD supplements, right. he finally directed his first film. It's a great film. We're so happy for him. But he's We're also so proud of him. But on top of that, he's also still doing really great DVD extras. And and, and is we're gonna we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk. All right, Barkeeper's friend. Yes. So anyway, uh, Martha Superhero Adventures. Martha is a superhero dog, and my daughter freaking loves dogs. I, I'm a cat person. My wife's a dog person. So clearly, she she got that from her mom. She loves dogs. Uh, she like looks at anything at random and just starts woofing. It's the funniest thing in the world. So yeah, we're we're into dogs. Uh, animated dogs especially uh, From Dinosaur Train Double feature of Dinosaur Big City Dinosaurs A to Z The only thing that my daughter understands about dinosaurs Is that uh, uh, George Pig Peppa Pig's younger brother Loves dinosaurs And uh, Dinosaur Train uh, Kind of reminds her of that she, she did, But I, I'm not quite sure if that's connecting yet uh, You know what I, I used to hate strawberry shortcake uh, But Fun Under the Sun Apparently is, uh, is popular now So I'm obligated now to watch strawberry shortcake um, it's, it's torturing me, but little girls seemingly like it, so especially when they're uh, having fun under the sun. Poppycat, Birthday Treasure, and Other Adventures. I have never heard of Poppycat. This is on Sprout, and this is from E1, and I'm starting to get accustomed to some of the things on Sprout. It's another kid's channel, and uh, there's some interesting things there, like Sarah and Duck, uh, which I'm looking forward to seeing on DVD as well. And uh, anyway, you got a bunch of episodes of uh, Poppy Cat, Birthday Treasure, and other adventures, including Birthday Treasure, Bad Robot, Magic Show, Sunken Ship, Bumble Fumble, Cheese Mountain, and Marshmallow Mines. It's a cute show. It's a, it's a really cute show. Really skews very, very young, but it's cute. Littlest Pet Shop. I'm obligated to watch this now. Like my daughter, they all have big heads and, uh, and moderate bodies. And uh, the, the pets are cute and animated. And this is from Shout Kids. Uh, courtesy of Hasbro And uh, I'm obligated now to find some cuteness in that um, Daughter's not really responding to Raggedy Ann and Andy 
I got three uh, volumes of The Adventures of Raggedy Ann and Andy, which is one of the creepiest animated shows of all time, based on a toy that no one ever should have owned in any generation ever. Uh, but that being said, we've got The Magic Wings Adventure, The Sunny Bunny Adventure, and The Pirate Adventure. And uh, it is absolutely chilling. Uh, these all have, well, the latter two have four episodes. The Magic Wings Adventure has five episodes. Strange show. Look, cannot, look, truly cannot recommend gone. it. Look at you. See, gone, right? Gone. Barkeeper's friend. Gone. Barkeeper's, Barkeeper's friend. friend. The best. Rock on. It was like four bucks at Bed Bath & Beyond. I know. Barkeeper's friend. Totally. Please animate. There you go. Paw Patrol. Uh, I don't like the animation. It's uh, it's that creepy uh, kind of half uh, half done CGI animation that's really popular now. But uh, the writing is okay. The writing's all right. So a bunch of episodes. Of Paw Patrol from Nickelodeon. We do watch a lot of Nick Jr. in my house, and Paw Patrol is cute. You know, it's again, it's a whole dog thing. Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Can't get with it. It's from Disney Jr. CGI animated Mickey, not uh, not with it. This really annoys me. I find it very 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 disturbing. Uh, the voice work is okay, but animation creeps me out. Uh, and this one is Around the Clubhouse World from Disney Junior. So uh, I mean, you know, if you if this is all you know, I guess whatever, it's fine. Uh, Sophia Grace and Rosie's Royal Adventure. This is uh, as seen on Ellen. Sophia Grace and Rosie's Royal Adventure. Do you know who these two little girls are, Mark? Oh, it's uh, a bunch of girls who will probably grow up and become... Uh, it's these two little girls who, who did like these viral videos on the internet, and now they're like uh, little micro-movie stars. And uh, they're not very good. I don't find them all that terribly cute. I think my daughter's a lot cuter, so I think I'm going to just boycott them. But that being said, their, their royal adventure, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's like the, somebody seems to think that if we just make them as cute as possible and without throw Ellen's name around, that it'll be like uh, Shirley Temple times two. Uh, not really. But I will say this. Uh, because I know that you care deeply about this Blu-ray, DVD, ultraviolet combo set, I'm going to go ahead and give you the little purple sparkly uh, uh, oh, luggage tag. I want the purple sparkly luggage tag. Yes, I know tag. you do. Pack your bags and get ready for Sophia Grace and Rosie's Royal That's Adventure. That's right. That's right. Uh, and then last few here really, really quickly. So as long as we're on the, on the little girl kick. Sophia the First, the Floating Palace, uh, with a special appearance by Ariel. Totally like Disney cross-marketing nightmare, but uh, I, I'll tell you, I, it's, it's charming. So as long as we're, you know, we're, we're, we're back into the whole Little Mermaid, Mermaid world, and uh, it, it, they do a really good job of making it uh, more appealing than it really should be. And I... Got a, I, got, I got a little girl. I got to be with it. My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, a dash of awesome. Uh, my little girl also likes horses now. She, she, that's, the other, that's the other thing. She makes horse sounds. Horses. She sees things that aren't even horses, and she makes horse sounds. She makes a horse sound when she sees a zebra. Oh. She thinks zebras are horses. Well, they it's are so horses. Cute. They are kind of horses, aren't they? It's cute. So I got, I'm down with that. Uh, Dora and Boots, best friends forever. We don't let her watch Dora. That we, we boycott Dora. Um, just because I, you know, some friends of ours in uh, in the UK, their little daughters, who Andrew knows, they were nuts for Dora, and I, I OD'd on Dora when we visited them, so I can't deal with Dora. Uh, but I, I you know, uh, tickety talk, uh, spring chicks time is creepy animation, not as creepy as Adventure Time, uh, but somehow my daughter finds it funny, so that's that's on the list. Uh, and then last few here, we have. Uh, Bella Sarah, Emma's Wings, 
I'm not quite sure if I'm down on this. It's the it's photorealistic, not very well photoreal, not it's not really very well done photorealistic CGI animation, but it does it's it's ambitious, and I can't really fault it for being that ambitious. So I'm trying to. This is a feature length thing that I, I've watched only part of. My daughter doesn't really respond to it, but I'm trying to give it a shot. It seems to be at least going for something a little bit better. And then on the train front, uh, little boys are more responsive to trains, but we got Chuggington and Thomas and Friends. Uh, the Chuggington is Explorer Coco. Thomas and Friends is Trouble on the Tracks, which is a Walmart exclusive. And uh, they're both kind of the same deal. You know, they're, they're trains with faces, and they're, you know, they, they entertain children by being cute trains with faces. It's the whole cars and planes thing except with trains so you know have at it have at it those are for little boys not for little girls but that being said there we go all right mark yes sir let's uh let's talk just a little bit of television first you are a huge fan of this man tell us why people should buy the thing in your hand (laughs) oh i'm sorry what did i say that (laughs) sorry the Bob Newhart Show complete series. Now this looks like it's, uh, uh, you know, a beautiful box set and uh, it is well put together. I wish that they had made this um, Shot Factory, the good people at Shot Factory, who we always love. I wish they had made this on Blu-ray. What they did was they took, uh, f- um, they took three, uh, they took eighteen DVDs and a bonus disc, packaged them up very tightly and very smartly, yep. and put them in a box set. Nice. So it's nice. Yeah. No doubt about it. Sure. They really did this show proud. Sure Wish it was Blu-ray. Just put it out there, Shot Factory. And you know we love Shot Factory. We do. Um, so this is the new Hard Show Complete series. I love this show. It's one of my favorite shows as a kid. This is 19 discs, all six seasons, 142 episodes. Uh, the show ran from 72 to 78, and Bob Newhart uh, was a stand-up comic, had a very uh, distinctive brand of comedy, very distinctive act, um, he was mostly known for his monologues where he would uh, pretend like he was talking to somebody over the phone and the way he talked to them over the phone and the way he stuttered and the way he revealed information was so unique for the time and so hilarious that actually you notice in the Bob Newhart show he takes a lot of phone calls because they're trying to recreate his stand-up act and it's great but it's still a good show in its own right he plays a uh, a psychologist in Chicago and his wife is played by uh, Suzanne Plachette and uh, Howard, who, uh, played by Bill Daly, my favorite character on the show, oh, the is an airline pilot. And he was, he, he was like the wacky neighbor. Oh, the he best. would just fly the door open and just walk in and say something it's ridiculous. Great. Bill Daly was the best. And uh, I thought the show was great. The show was funny, mainly because uh, Bob Newhart's so hilarious and classic. Also, the show featured Marsha Wallace. Now, Marsha Wallace, for those who don't know, would eventually go on and become the voice of Mrs. Krabappel on The Simpsons for many, many That's years before right. passing away, unfortunately. I think earlier this year or late last yeah. year. Yeah, it was. Um, so, The Bob Newhart Show, it's a classic. Uh, Shot Fact did a great job putting this together. The bonus disc is fun. Uh, it's, you know, it's got a new interview with Bob Newhart. It's got an uh, 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 unaired version of the uh, pilot episode. It's got an anniversary show from 1991. It was like the 19th anniversary of the show at the time. There are some audio commentaries on the episodes. There's a gag reel. There's a booklet. I, this is great. If you love the Bob New, if you're put it this way, yeah. If your parents got this, you would be like the greatest That's son or daughter it, in the world. True. And by the way, by the way, Bill Daly. Yes. Eighty-six years old. Yeah. He's, He's awesome. He's a man. Totally. So the man. I would put him on a TV show today. I would. Screw Betty White. Bill Daly. Bring him back. We need him. I will take Bob Newhart over. I dream of Jeannie. 
Gilligan's Island. Oh, I, 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 no, no, I, yes, I do. I will yes. not. I will not choose. I will not pick favorites among my children. <laughs> Daddy loves them all. Uh, the Universe, Season 7, Ancient Mysteries Solved, from the History Channel on Blu-ray. I, I got to tell you, I, you know, the, this, is, this is kind of going a little bit um, tabloid, to be honest. The, uh, growing up, I was, as a kid, I was a big fan of all the, the, the Eric Von Daniken things, right? Chariots of the Gods and the Outer Space Connection, you know, where, where Von Daniken was, you know, this pyramid in central, in the, the Incas built this pyramid. It was impossible. The only way they could have built it was if aliens came and helped them put it together. And I loved all that stuff. You know, here we have a relief of the gods in Egypt, but they're not really gods. It's a space helmet, and this is a space capsule. I loved all that stuff. It was great. So that's what the uh, the universe is trying to get into a little bit. There, they're going in that direction and uh, talking about you know Star of Bethlehem and Stonehenge and. The pyramids, of course, nobody, everyone's always obsessed with the pyramids. Like, what were they really? Uh, and it starts to feel very Kingdom of the Crystal Skull at a certain point. So, and it doesn't really resolve anything. Ancient mysteries solved? No, not really. You haven't solved any ancient mysteries. Uh, you know, Easter Island and all the rest of it? Uh, no, it doesn't. No, stop it. So, it's, it's, uh, it, it slums it a little bit on that one. Wait, don't forget, uh, coming up uh, a interview. little later... Interview. Charles Lazarica. Oh, you gave it away. DV- what, it's not like Steven Spielberg. DVD supplement producer extraordinaire, Top of the Mountain, right. who finally directed his debut film. It's a good film. And uh, we'll talk to him about it in a few minutes. But first, yep. Wade's going to talk about... I'm going to talk about a few new movies. Uh, Mark, I'm going to... Yes, sir. I can't, yes, ma'am. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. On that I can't. One. I can't. I can't, stand, I, can't, I, can't. I can't stand losing. I can't. I can't. I can't stand losing. I can't. I can't go there with that one. But yeah, I, I will let you do the honors. Uh, mechanic. Not like the mechanic. And not, not the it, Charles Bronson film? No. This is mechanic MC. As in like, you know... Hello there. I, my name is Mechanic. Right, like Irish, Scottish. Dud. Yeah. M-C-C-A-N-I-C-K. Uh, you get it. It sounds like mechanic, but it's mechanic. Whatever. Dud. They have this at the uh, Toronto Film Festival, and uh, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough cop film with David Morse playing, a, uh, playing the cop. It's trying to sort of... Everything always seems to want to shadow uh, Serpico a little bit, but nothing ever really digs that deep. They all kind of wind up more like a like Lethal Weapon a little bit or halfway there anyway uh, you know it's, it's fine it's a gritty film it's decent uh, but the thing that really really holds it together is the fact that uh, David Morris is just so so good even when the movie is less than great David Morris is just fantastic uh, Corey Monteith is in this uh, and uh, you know there's obviously some sadness that will go along with that uh, but uh, it doesn't make the you know it doesn't really change the movie anymore any any to any great degree. Uh, Karen Hines, by the way, is also in this. He's showing up in everything these days. Love him as an actor, by the way. He's a good guy. Karen Hines, by the way, he's in uh, he's in um, he's cool. He's in uh, the uh, the disappearance of uh, Eleanor Rigby. Is that right? Yeah, have you seen that? Oh, you have seen that. I have seen that. You've seen them both. Now, supposedly there's a new cut that's like sixty minutes uh, shorter. It's it's it, well, there there is him and her and them. There's the one, and, and the them is 60 minutes shorter than the combined. Him it and her. is cur- well. The, him is a, is the film of his point of view. Her is her point of view, and then them is cut like a normal movie. That's the whole deal. I'm not seeing him and her. I'm seeing them. 
I'm a very busy man. Everyone is seeing them. Yeah. Him, him and her is, is it, it, it'll wind up on the Criterion Edition. They'll have like three films, and I bet you there will be. Anyway, so, you know, see Mechanic for David Morse. Uh, and then Gambit. My gosh, Mark, this is the weirdest film. Did this even get a theatrical release? Did uh, I miss this? Uh, no, it did not. But it does have an Oscar winner, and that's why it's weird. No, it's, it's strange. This is, uh, this is Blu-ray with uh, Ultraviolet on it from Sony. And I, for the life of me, I'm like, why did this not get a theatrical release? I don't understand. This doesn't make any sense. Uh, Michael Hoffman directed this. Michael Hoffman is a real director. You know, like... like I mean, he's a real director. Soap and, dish. And soap dish. Colin Firth, Cameron Diaz, Alan Rickman. This is a real cast. Like, Colin Firth is an Oscar winner. Joel and Ethan Cohen wrote this. I don't understand. How, how, do you like, how do you look at this and you go, hmm, Michael Hoffman, Joel and Ethan Cohen, uh, Alan Rickman, Colin Firth, Cameron Diaz. Cameron, yeah, let's put this straight to video. What? 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 I don't understand. Is it, is, it, is it good? Not particularly. Is it great? No. Is it horrible? No. Totally releasable. That just doesn't make any sense. Anyway, uh, uh, Colin Firth plays a, uh, an art curator. Alan Rickman plays his, uh, his horrible, horrible boss. And, uh, you know, he de- this is about the, how the guy decides, I'm going to get back at my boss. And it involves uh, faking a painting. And uh, Cameron Diaz is, is adorable and funny. And... It's clever. I don't. I don't get it. I mean, it's 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 very kind of Cohen esque, and Michael Hoffman does a good job. And I, I just for the life of me, I don't understand why this film fell totally between the cracks. I just don't get it. But there it is. I mean, major names. I wonder what the Cohen brothers think about this. Not much, probably. Man. Uh, wait, anyway. nineteen eighty one. There was a movie called Endless Love. Yeah. And Endless Love starred which of, was horrible. It's what his. You know what? It was a it was a Franco Zeffirelli film. It was so embarrassing. It was started very young Brooke Shields. It and, had, but, and it had Tom Cruise. It was like his film for, debut. It, yeah. And uh, you know the movie wasn't even a huge hit, but it was, uh, it was very sexual at the time, and a lot of people oh. complained about the uh, the uh, you know after sexuality saw, and the relationship between this young girl. I. I was big on Brooke Shields, right? I had the Brooke Shields posters. I was one of those teenage boys who was like, oh, it's all about Brooke, you know? And uh, after the Blue Lagoon, we we're like, oh, Brooke, I'm so going to meet her. I'm, I'm so going to... It's on. And then Endless Love came out, and we went and saw it, and then at the end of the movie, we we're like, yeah, not so much. That kind of killed it. Yeah. That kind of knocked it out. Well, for some reason, there's a remake of this, and I don't know why, because it's no terrible, and it did not be made. You know what? Here's the thing. If you want to ma- if you want to do a remake of Endless Love, fine. But can you at least give us a reason to make it other than I some corporate boardroom said, "Well, the kids will see because it's Alex Pettifer, yeah, and their parents whatever. will see it because they remember the original." Whatever. Does it ever get any more creative than that? No. No. The Greenlight process. No, it doesn't. No. Well, this film is just terrible. In fact, uh, it's called Endless Love, and it's funny because Endless actually li- it lives up to its name because this movie's endless. Yep. It absolutely is terrible. Uh, no reason to make it. It's a total. It's all these teen romance cliches that we all hate. It's totally banal. It's just. It's not sexy. It's just a bunch of like yearning gaze, uh, gazes and you know tender kisses and just. Uh, it's just horrible. It's a stinker. It's a stinker. Wade. All right. Do not even touch endless love. Mark, I'm gonna burn through. Uh, However, I will say this. Yes. I will say this. I've always wanted to have a band. Sure. And the band, the band's name would be Lunch Hour. And the reason why the band's name would be Lunch Hour. It's because every song the band played would have the title Lunch in It, uh, Love in It. I messed up the story. 
every song the band played would be a song that included the word love, which you would then change to lunch. And that would be the funny part. Oh, dear. Like, for instance, I, I want you, our you, band you, to play I The know. Beatles Can't Buy Me Lunch, because oh, that's funny. Thanks for reading. And our band us. would also play Endless Lunch, which was, of course, it was a big hit for Lionel Richie at the time. Sure. So, Lunch Hour, the band I've always wanted to form, which would play songs with the word love in the title, but replace the word love with lunch, would play Endless Lunch. It's a dream I have, Wade. That's I'm not giving that dream up. Uh, God, we're going to go into some documentaries, and uh, we're going to start with a couple from uh, Cinema Libre, but there's also a Cinema Libre title that's not a documentary that's worth mentioning, because this is a cool little indie film that nobody has probably heard of, but it's worth checking out. It's called As High as the Sky, and uh, this thing did the uh, festival circuit for a while and did very well, very well. and uh, you know what? It's worth checking out, even though it's got nobody of, uh, with any names in it. Uh, this is one of those little indie Well, they all have names. I mean, like they, you know what I'm saying. They haven't gone through life without a name. Oh, That's weird, yes, Wade. of course. God, just uh, get straight. Get it straight, Wade. I know. Anyway, uh, no, this is terrific. Uh, this is really terrific. It's about a woman who's obsessive compulsive, and her sister and her sister's daughter show up for a visit, which of course just disrupts everything. But there's this sort of reconciliation between the sisters that takes place, and uh, some really great little dramatic twists in it that you really don't see coming. And I normally see all this stuff coming. And this is. Uh, this is a sharp little movie made for very little money, but uh, really earnest, really heartfelt, nicely acted by, uh, by the, the actors. And it's definitely worth checking out as high as the sky. It was a nice surprise. And then uh, moving into docs, a uh, really, really good doc from uh, Cinema Libre is uh, Kids' Rights, The Business of Adoption. Um, as, a, as a parent now, uh, a little more, more than a year, I, I have a fascinating uh, perspective on this, and especially a perspective on, on adoption. We did not adopt, but uh, we have a lot of adopted uh, extended family members, and uh, this is uh, this is really th- this really really goes into a lot a lot of interesting stuff, and it, the the stress of adoption and what it means and what people go through, and uh, it, it, you know it's not it's not like a rose colored picture of adoption. It really gets into uh, like underground adoption and child trafficking. And uh, it's pretty terrific. There are even interviews here with uh, Elton John and David Furnish, uh, which is a great get, by the way, by any any stretch. And, um, you know, Steve Jobs was adopted. You know that, right? I know. He has, a, he has such a fascinating personal yeah. story. But they talk to, I mean, they talk to every conceivable expert in the field to sort of, you know, talk about the pitfalls of adoption and the pluses of adoption and what to do and what not to do and all that. It's just, it's a really, really great overview. So, I mean, if you are adopted, if you're thinking about adoption, if you, you know, are you're dating someone who's adopted, whatever the case is, it's worth watching. It Pamela's is. adopted. Pamela's Pam- adopted? Really? She is. What? So is her husband. Oh. And I have a cousin, my, uh, uh, my cousin's adopted. She's seven now. Well, I've got, a, I got, a, I got an adopted brother-in-law. Chrissy's got a lot of adoptive cousins. It's, uh, you know, I've got, I've got on, the, on the other side of the family, there's, there's some adoption. I've adopted uh, a hateful attitude towards all women. There you go. So you, you know what it's all about. And then uh, real quickly, just burning through the rest of these docs super fast, Desert Riders is uh, a really entertaining doc about camel racing, which is a big deal on, uh, all over the Middle East and in the uh, Indian subcontinent. Camel racing is really fun. Desert Riders makes me want to go ride a camel. I'm not kidding. Um, and uh, let's see here. The First World War, the complete series. 
is uh, perfectly timely because we're in the uh, 100th anniversary of the beginning of World War I, and it's time that people rediscover that war because it is just such a pivotal moment. Uh, it is, uh, this is based on the uh, Hugh Strachan book, and it's narrated by Jonathan Lewis. It is uh, a 10-part documentary, and it is absolutely first-rate. It is amazing. Uh, it's the, uh, for my money, this is like, as of right now, the definitive doc for the, uh, the 100th anniversary. Uh, God Loves Uganda. It was a huge documentary last year, really, really important. Uh, the, the, um, there's like this epidemic of uh, gay persecution that's sweeping across the African continent, and Uganda is ground zero for it. And uh, there have been several documentaries made about this. This is one of the better ones. They're obviously not in competition. They all complement each other. Uh, you know, My Name is Kuchu uh, it was the other one. Which is terrific. Which is terrific. Great and film. if you've seen that, watch this. If you haven't seen that, also watch this and then watch that. Uh, they really do complement each other. Absolutely first rate and vital to watch. And then there is this uh, totally bizarre movie by um, Michel Gondry, who makes nothing but bizarre movies. Uh, is the man who is tall happy? Did you see this? I did not. It's an animated conversation with Noam Chomsky. Oh, that Noam Chomsky. Yeah. He's a Chomskyist. I, you know, I know there are a lot of Noam Chomsky fans in the world. I think the world has way too many egg-headed, like, lunatics. And uh, even, even the ones that are really smart, it's just at a certain point I get, I get sick and tired of, like, gray-haired professorial types just pontificating about why the world is going to end and everyone else is clueless and they have a clue. Gore Vidal is one of them, and Noam Chomsky is another one. They all remind me of like Father Theodore. Remember, remember, or Brother Theodore. Remember Brother Theodore on Letterman. It was, it was. You are thing. going back. Yeah, I am going back. Brother Theodore. They're all variations of Brother Theodore. Anyway, well, this is animated to make it even weirder. Uh, I, I guess if you're a Chomsky fan, and if he just like really speaks to your soul, then then by all means, just suck it up. But. I, you know, within like ten minutes, I just I felt like I wanted to go get a, get cheese and crackers and just watch you know Nickelodeon Junior or something. It just it didn't work. It didn't work for me at all. So there you go. Wade, uh, you better you better crank through okay, these because we got uh, Charles Lazarica coming. We do. Yes, we do. We He's sure got his film do. Debut. We sure do. All right. So uh, super fast. You know what? Some of these things I am going to shuttle off until next week. Um, but right now we should we should really I, I should crank through this. Uh, we got some Criterion stuff in here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna blow through as much of this as I possibly can here. We got some classic movies, Mark. These are we got a great one here. A new restoration of the People versus Paul Crump. Are you even familiar with the People versus uh, Paul Crump? That is a yes. That is a documentary directed by um, William Friedkin. Friedkin. This is this is like historic. Like, it is. I mean, this, this no one's ever heard of this. I I'd never even heard of this. How, how have you heard of this? Because it's part of free. It was it was like the very very first thing he did that got him any attention. Yeah, and it was a documentary. It, it was it, before he was doing narrative films. Well, yeah, it's it's about this. Uh, it's a, about a robbery. It's like a court case or something. It's about a robbery. It? It's about a robbery that took place in 1953, where a bunch of black guys robbed a um, a meatpacking plant in Chicago. And uh, they, of course, you know, completely blew it, and uh, they killed a security guard. And uh, this is a, a, essentially there were like coerced testimonies, and, and it, it the whole thing gets it's really interesting. I mean, you can totally see where Friedkin's sensibilities as a narrative filmmaker are being forged the way that he approaches this. Anyway, really, really good, and uh, it's just a, a fascinating film. This is from Facets. And it's completely restored now. Uh, and if you, it's just I had no idea. 
it's really good. So uh, I definitely highly recommend this. It was made in 1962. That's, uh, again, that classic year of Lawrence of Arabia. This is what Friedkin was doing. Uh, and uh, it's pretty great. You know, a decade later, he becomes one of our preeminent, you know, filmmakers of the 70s. Uh, Dan Curtis's Dracula, which starred Jack Palance, was uh, a really, really campy television variation on Dracula at the time that Dan Curtis was just coming off of uh, Dark Shadows and he was trying to sort of transition his cachet and some other things. Um, this is uh, transferred from the original 35mm camera Neg and it is on Blu-ray for the very first time. It, uh, it doesn't age terribly well, but it's still really interesting, uh, it, mainly because Richard Matheson wrote the screenplay and did a hell of a screenplay. So uh, Dracula, the Jack Palance version, is on Blu-ray at long last. And then uh, we also have from Kino's Slapstick Symposium line, four restored classic comedies starring Max Linder. Max Linder, one of the unsung uh, silent comics that everyone kind of forgets about. And uh, even Chaplin, you know, sort of admired Linder and borrowed a lot of stuff from him. And you get uh, the three must-get-theirs. Get it? Musketeers, must-get-theirs from 1922. Be My Wife from 1921. Seven Years Bad Luck from 1921. And Max Wants a Divorce from 1917, which is the shortest of the lot at only 27 minutes. The others are all around, uh, around an hour. And Linder is a really interesting uh, filmmaker and actor and, and comic. And uh, what, he, what he did is a little bit like... You know, sort of somewhere between, I guess, somewhere between Cary Grant and Mel Brooks. You know, he he, he did some very interesting stuff. Um, and uh, I'm going to nail a few redemption titles, and then I'll let you talk about those. Uh, redemption has a bunch of uh, interesting quasi-exploitation titles that are, are worth mentioning. Uh, a Jess Franco film called The Demons, which may be one of the two or three best films that Jess Franco ever did. Uh, not a Jess Franco fan, but this is from 1973, and uh, it is a, uh, one of the what uh, people call the nunsploitation genre, and uh, certainly a, uh, a shocking film, but not boring, as his films often are. Uh, another Blu-ray from Redemption is Pete Walker's Frightmare, uh, Pete Walker, uh, certainly an icon in the field, and uh, I don't... This one's, you know, okay, I guess. Uh, it, it Not not one of the, you know... I'm not, a, I'm not a huge Pete Walker fan, but some people are, so, you know, knock yourselves out. Um, much more interesting are a series of films that uh, feature... These are all from the... Um, well, the, the Alain Robet-Grier line, which is part of the Redemption Library, and Alain uh, Robet-Grier made films that are sort of only nominally exploitation films, but uh, they oftentimes feature Jean-Louis Trintignant, and uh, they're much more sophisticated and uh, serious than you might normally expect, but they all have sort of perverse edges to them. So they, they feel legit, but when you think about it, they're really all exploitation elements. And we're talking specifically about uh, Trintignant and Lonsdale in a successive slidings of pleasure. And then uh, we also have uh, Françoise Brion and Jacques Daniel Valcroz in La Mortelle, L apostrophe, and then, you know, Immortal with the uh, double L-E at the end of it, which is, which is a really, really interesting movie, beautifully shot, uh, really twisted, and, uh, but really, really nicely done. Really just, it's got, a, it's got a very kind of French New Wave vibe to it. 
Um, and then we've got uh, Trintignant in The Man Who Lies, which is also really, really interesting. Very, very well shot. That one is from uh, 1968. And then uh, the last two are uh, Trintignant and uh, Marie-France Pizier in Trans Europe Express, which uh, feels almost more like a... Almost feels more like a uh, like a Godard film in many respects. I got to be honest. Uh, and then uh, we have Eden and After, which may be the the weakest of them. It oddly enough, it's color and something. It loses something in the color photography, and that's from uh, 1970, and was uh, co-financed in uh, t- with Tunisian money. It's very very strange. This one's a bunch of, bunch of students that you know are experimenting, and it it just starts to feel a little bit belabored. Uh, let's see. And uh, real quickly, a couple of criterions. Uh, Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou is out on a Blu-ray special edition. Of course, everything Wes Anderson does eventually winds up on uh, on Criterion, which is pretty cool. It's a nice place to be. This is not one of my favorites. I thought Bill Murray was a little odd and uh, miscast in this. I'm not sure what the point of the film really was. Uh, the whole, it just was weird. But, you know, it's out there on Blu-ray for those who want to discover it. Lots of extras on here, including a documentary called This is an Adventure, which is all about the film's production. And then a fantastic criterion of uh, Howard Hawks' Red River. Ooh, that's a great one. Blu-ray and DVD. Looks gorgeous. Uh, One of the best Howard Hawks-John Wayne collaborations ever uh, from 1948. Really, really good. Beautiful black and white. Doesn't get any better than this. Lots and lots of great stuff in here, including... Some audio on here from 1972 where Howard Hawks is basically being interviewed by uh, Peter Bogdanovich. And that's great. I mean, we interviewed Bogdanovich for, for Schlock, and there's, there's just no end to how awesome that guy is when he gets going. So, really great. Uh, so, uh, definitely check that out. And um, there's also a Lux Radio adaptation of the, of the uh, story from 1949, which they, they have a lot of those on, on these, uh, these sets. Uh, we got a couple of uh, oldies, but uh, kind of goodies. The Money Changers. Now, The Money Changers is based on the Arthur Haley novel. Arthur Haley, of course, also wrote uh, Airport, which was made into a whole bunch of movies, many starring Charlton Heston. Yep. And uh, this movie's a little bit dated because it sort of takes place before all the bank mergers that began in the 80s, but uh, there's still some good performances in it, good cast, including uh, Kirk Douglas, Christopher Plummer, who I think won an Emmy for this, um, Timothy Bottoms and Ann Baxter. Uh, so it's good stuff. It's good stuff. It's a little dated, but it's very exciting. It's about uh, all the backstabbing that goes on at a bank. And, uh, yeah, the money changers. So it's not bad. Now, we also have The Revengers. Now, The Revengers, it's an interesting movie. It's kind of actually kind of a failed movie. It, um, it's a Western from 1972. It was directed by Daniel Mann, who also directed uh, Butterfield 8 and Our Man Flint. And it's with William Holden. And it's kind of a dark Western kind of tries to take westerns back to kind of that uh you know that wild bunch dirty dozen you know dark times sure uh but it's okay i like william holden especially when he gets kind of badass um ernest borgnine chews a lot of scenery in this um ultimately this film is kind of a bit of a failure but uh it's a nice try the revengers with william holden we uh we also have um city poitier in separate but equal now uh poitier He's um, he doesn't really do much anymore because he's much older. But in this one, he did win an Emmy, and it's a great story. It's all about 
uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. That's the Supreme Court decision that, uh, you know, was a major victory for civil rights yeah. in America. Yeah, uh, hence the title. Hence the title. Yeah. And uh, this also stars uh, Burt Lancaster as well as Sidney Poitier. This is probably the best version of that court case ever committed to film, I have to say, directed by George Stevens Jr. So um, it's not bad. This is a bit. This is kind of forgotten. And actually, I have to. I have to actually appreciate uh, CBS DVD for uh, unearthing this, and um, pretty great. Yeah, and putting it back on on yeah. uh, DVD. So it's good stuff. Separate but equal. Sidney Poitier. He's great in it. He uh, earned an Emmy. So uh, kudos, there you go. kudos to them. And then uh, the last batch that we're going to blow through before we jump into our great conversation with Charles de Lazarica. Uh, Notes on a Scandal is out on Blu-ray. Uh, a lot of people really kind of tried to diss this as just some psycho thriller, you know, like a uh, kind of a, a, a May-December uh, fem- British female uh, repressed lesbian version of uh, Fatal Attraction, but it's not. It's and what's interesting is the the you know the artwork here on the cover really evokes Persona Bergman's Persona in many interesting ways. But I, Judy Dench and Kate Blanchett, great, both of them absolutely terrific in this. Uh, it just I think one of the best psychological thrillers of the last twenty years. This film was just sensational, one of my favorite films of the year. And uh, director Richard Ayer, you know, who we haven't heard from for years now. What was the last? This was the last thing he did. Has he done anything since this? Uh, not that I know. Of. Gosh, man, that guy's a really good director. Anyway, that's out on Blu-ray. And then from the Warner Archive collection, got one on blue, one on DVD. On the the DVD, and it's Falling in Love, Robert De Niro and Meryl Streep. In a movie that is not nearly up to their talents, directed by Ulu Grossbard, uh, who is capable of better work but just didn't do it uh, and you know I, I, it, it's fine if you love the two actors but it's just it's very very light it's really light it's not uh, not what you would hope and expect and then one of the uh, very infrequent too infrequent frankly uh, Blu-ray releases from the Warner Archive collection is uh, Hit the Deck the uh, Cinemascope musical which is just such a blast such a joy to watch uh, if you've never seen Hit the Deck you will just love it and of course it's not like you know a lot there, there were a lot of musicals in that day that were all sort of about sailors you know uh, it, that was kind of a big thing like let's get to Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra and you know put them on put them in uh, sailor outfits and let them dance around and, uh, on the town or whatever it, it, this, is, this is not quite up to that level but it's still a lot of fun so you definitely want to check that out. Uh, and then from uh, Warner Brothers, not the Warner Archive collection, but regular Warner proper, we have, well, actually, one is Warner Archive. Uh, Wind and the Lion is still Warner Archive. That's uh, Sean Connery and uh, Candace Bergen and Brian Keith and John Huston in uh, a film that is distinguished by an amazing Jerry Goldsmith score. Uh, this was uh, also written and directed by John Melius, who's, like, overcoming amazing health problems right now. I didn't is even that realize right? that. Did not yeah. know that. Yeah, Milius has like been messed up for a while. I, I guess a stroke or something like that. Well, you know what? Uh, if, if if anyone has Netflix, there's a documentary on yeah, John really Milius, really a really good, good one. one that's available on Netflix right now. Netflix yeah. streaming. You don't have to you don't have to wait for the DVD. You can just stream it tonight. Well, anyway, this is a, a very very timely because it takes place in uh, Morocco, 1904, and it a lot of the sort of uh, Europe uh, West Arab world Muslim Christian things that uh, are very much in the news right now are very much a part of this movie very much a movie ahead of its time in 1975 I, I think uh, definitely worth revisiting and then uh, not part of the Warner Archive collection uh, is the fantastic The Women if you've never seen The Women it is one of the greatest 
female ensemble cast of all time. George Cooker knocking it out of the park with Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, and Rosalind Russell. Absolutely first rate. One of the greatest Hollywood movies ever made. One of the greatest female movies ever made. Um, just sensational in every conceivable way. And with a great screenplay by women, I would point out, Anita Lewis and Jane Murphy uh, at the time. Really just sensational. Excellent film on all counts. And then from uh, 20th Century Fox is the Rodgers and Hammerstein Collection. Six of their films on Blu-ray. If you already have the uh, Sound of Music's uh, Anniversary Edition, you're probably not going to want to get rid of it because it comes with a lot of other cool stuff. But you may want to double-dip that one on this because this also includes Carousel, King and I, Oklahoma, South Pacific, and State Fair. And Oklahoma has... Is that all on Blu-ray? All on Blu-ray. Give me that. All on Blu-ray. I want it. Dude. Let me see it. No. Let me see it. Uh, Oklahoma. Let me just let me let me just say. Where the wind comes sweeping down the plains. Yes, Oklahoma includes both the Tadeo and the Cinemascope versions, and uh, South Pacific includes both the the regular theatrical version and that long roadshow version. So you you get uh, basically not just six films. You get eight films. It is it's a it's a great set. No, it's not terrible. It's It's terrible. Give it to me. It's a great set. I no, want it. Give it to me. 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 Not in a million years. Uh, and then Twilight Time. Uh, if you go to ScreenArchive.com, uh, you will you'll be able to buy the amazing Twilight Time titles. Uh, their latest set is great. Fate is the Hunter is uh, one of the best things that Glenn Ford ever did. And uh, Glenn Ford is just so good in this. It it will blow your mind. This is from a novel by Ernest K. Gann, who, of course, wrote uh, The High and the Mighty. And uh, this is all about a pl- an airplane crash. And it's just, it's just really, really good. And uh, it's, it's as good as any movie can ever be about such a horrible subject. Unbelievably well done. Uh, we also have the amazingly cheesy Rollerball, directed by Norman Jewison, which uh, they remade, and it was horrible. And the original is just the best. Because it's basically, it's like a near future, and roller derby has become... Like this scary death sport. It's great. It was one of the first of those uh, near futuristic, uh, you know, uh, gladiatorial movies, and it's really, really good. Uh, Two Road Together, not great. Uh, you feel uh, Jimmy Stewart a little worse for the wear. Uh, Richard Widmark a little worse for the wear in this. Shirley Jones always wonderful, uh, but uh, as a western, it's 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 passable. You know, 1961. It's uh, you know it sits in there between better films that Jimmy Stewart made, but it's certainly uh, for for you know fans of Jimmy Stewart westerns, it's uh, not bad, not bad. And Richard Widmark, you know, who cares? Uh, that was a joke. I was dismissive of Richard Widmark, and you didn't even How that. dare you? And uh, a, a relatively recent film for Twilight Zone to be... Re- uh, Twilight Zone. Twilight Time to be releasing is the 2009 film The Firm. Not the Tom Cruise movie, uh, but this is a low-budget film uh, by Nick Love, which is essentially a remake of the Alan Clark television movie. And uh, I never saw the original Alan Clark film, so I can't necessarily compare. But um, as far as a movie about, uh, you know, wasted youth, it's, it's pretty good. Uh, so probably worth, definitely worth checking out. Paul Anderson is uh, one of the actors in this and, and does a very, very good job. So that's an unusual kind of uh, more recent, not recognizable release from Twilight Time. But it's, uh, it's one worth, definitely worth checking out. And my favorite Twilight Time release is... The uh, double feature of Thunderbirds Are Go and Thunderbird 6. 
I love the Thunderbirds, <laughs> and they made feature films of the Thunderbirds, and here they are on Blu-ray. Lame. And I am so happy. I cannot get enough of uh, Jerry Lame. Anderson's Super Marionation. Thunderbirds are go, and tons of extras here. Audio commentary from uh, a couple of film historians, uh, including Nick Redman, on Thunderbirds or Go is just so much fun. Cannot get enough. And then uh, on um, Thunderbird 6, there's an audio commentary, I have to say, that uh, blows my mind. And they, and, and they do the commentary uh, on, on Thunderbirds or Go as well. But Thunderbird 6, I think, has the better commentary track with uh, Sylvia Anderson, Jerry Anderson's widow, and uh, David Lane, who directed. Now, their commentary on Thunderbirds or Go, for some reason, is overshadowed by the one with the film historians. But they do the solo commentary on Thunderbird 6, and it's awesome. It's absolutely awesome. Don't miss it. And tons and tons of other extras here uh, you know, on the effects and how they did it. And it's just... It's great. Anything to do with Thunderbirds makes me very, very happy. Makes me feel like I'm a kid again. And uh, Charles DeLazurica is waiting. I know he is. I know he is. And uh, a couple of a couple of Blu-ray sets, really quickly, from uh, Warner Brothers. The uh, True Stories of World War II and Invasion Europe. They have packed a whole bunch of stuff into these things. Memphis Bell, which is also recently released. Battle of the Bulge and Defiance, which is a crap film from. from uh, director Edward, Zw- Edward Zwick with a just bizarre, not very good performance by Daniel Craig. But that is the ringer here. The other two are good. Memphis Bell is good. Battle of the Bulge is great. That's in a, a Blu-ray set called True Stories of World War II. And then Invasion Europe is awesome. This includes the George Stevens documentary D-Day to Berlin, along with Where Eagles Dare uh, with Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood. Amazing. The Dirty Dozen, unbelievably amazing. And, of course, uh, Samuel Fuller's, uh, the restored cut of Samuel Fuller's The Big Red One in the uh, uh, Invasion Europe. This is all part of the 70th anniversary of D-Day, which is coming up in June. So buy these, celebrate D-Day, go nuts. Uh, Wade Werner Herzog uh, gave us the stunning visuals that enhance and enliven Nosferatu the Vampire. Totally. With Klaus Kinski. Totally. As Nosferatu. This is great. This was an absolutely off-the-wall, bonkers, amazing-looking... This is pretty much Werner Herzog. I mean, Werner Herzog, I, I, I know he has his moments. I don't consider Werner Herzog a visual director. He can be. Not, I mean, he can be, he like, can you know, Fitzcarraldo, blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, yeah, But this is where he pretty much put, like, you know, eight films' worth of uh, visual insanity into one film. True. You know? I mean, this is just crazy off-the-wall stuff. I, I think this film's just terrific. Um, it's the remake of the 1922 uh, silent film classic, and uh, it's great. Klaus Kinsey was totally born to play this role. He True. is the vampire. And uh, it's just very eccentric and very odd, but it's never silly or ridiculous. It's very surrealist, and it's just really, really good stuff. I just think this film is kind of overlooked, and I think modern audiences would, would really get a kick out of uh, Nosferatu. Awesome. And uh, the very last thing we're going to talk about before we go to uh, Charles Lazarica is McClintock. And this is going to really upset a lot of people because um, this is the uh, authentic collector's edition from original film elements. That's the way they put it. Paramount has released the authentic collector's edition from original film elements of John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara in McClintock, uh, which was directed by Andrew V. McLaughlin and is one of the all-time great John Wayne films. This is on Blu-ray. The reason this is going to upset a lot of people is because only two months ago, Olive Films released their Blu-ray of it, their limited edition Blu-ray. 
And I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened with the Wright situation, but for whatever reason, I guess theirs sold so well that Warner that, that uh, Paramount decided, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna one up you, and suddenly now it's out again. So anybody who bought the Olive Films Blu-ray two months ago and thought finally I have the definitive version of McClintock on Blu-ray because Paramount's never going to release it. Two months later, Paramount just shafted you and released an even better version of it on Blu-ray. So, kind of a rude thing to do. I'm really surprised that it happened. I don't know why. It's very strange. Nothing like this has ever happened before where a studio has licensed a title for release to somebody else and then two months later they release their own version of it. I have no clue. I've inquired. Nobody has an answer for me. So, there you go. I'd say, you know eBay that, uh, that, that Olive Films version of McClintock and, and pick this one up because it really is a lot better. It really looks a lot cleaner. And it has gobs of special features, including an introduction by our friend Leonard Malton, who also participates in a commentary with uh, just about everybody else under the sun, including Andrew McLaughlin. Um, anyway, and so there you go. It's the strangest thing in the world. All right, and now, without further ado, we are going to talk to Charles DeLazurica. And we are talking with our longtime good friend... And uh, we say that because we're kissing up to him, aren't we, Mark? Well, he deserves to be kissed Absolutely, up, too, because he, he directed does. a movie. Uh, what have Char- you done? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, I, I, I have to sit with you in it every week. Uh, Charles DeLazarica, the, uh, the extraordinary master producer of Extras on DVDs, who has now become a filmmaker, and released uh, on DVD and on Blu-ray his first film, Crave, with the incredibly cool cast of uh, Josh Lawson, Emma Long, Edward Furlong, and the great Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman... Um, has one of those faces that uh, we never forget, and people like to hang makeup on it. How did Ron Perlman, before we get into the movie itself, how did Ron Perlman get attached to this? Well, that the role of Pete that he plays was always intended to be sort of like the anchor to the, the marquee. If, like we're going to find some actor with some name value to help you know boost the, the credibility of the film, but also it would be a really nice character performance. So um, we put together a list of, I want to say like maybe a dozen or how, or two dozen actors and uh, interesting actors that we thought we could approach. They weren't like mega stars; they were really like nice, solid character actors who've been working a long time. And uh, that list eventually, we sent it out and we got word back. Okay, so and so is interested, but they're not available. So and so is available, but they're not interested. And just kind of like we whittled it down to maybe like six names. And of those six, I felt Ron was the best suited for the role. So it was, pre- it was pretty simple. Um, he liked the script, and it worked in his schedule, and it just it just fit. So it was it was kind of lucky that uh, we got a character uh, like Ron um, in the movie because I think it just adds this whole other dimension to it. And plus, like you say, he has such an amazing face; it's kind of it's hard to forget him, and it just instantly creates a character. Like the moment you see him, he, you don't really have to uh, spend a lot of time building him up or establishing him because you say, I, "I I know this guy," or if I don't know this guy, he's so interesting. I want to learn more about him. You don't have to like hook the audience in. They're just pre-hooked once they see Ron. Well, you know, he's he's just such an amazing and diverse actor. I mean, we think of not just Beauty and the Beast on television, but all the stuff that he's done, Hellboy and on and on and on, and uh, even Drive, which, you know, was such an unusual turn for him, and he's great in it. And he's great in this film. I mean, he's just, uh, he brings so much gravitas. It's just, uh, he's, a, he's a heavyweight. Um Mark, go ahead. You had a thought. I, I, I'm curious, as a, as a director, especially a first-time director with Crave, when you have a guy like Ron Perlman, who you know has done, has been working for 20 years, does, does he make it easier for you in any way to get through the day? 
Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, on the one hand, it's a little more intimidating because, you know, he's worked with so many huge directors and he's been around for so long that, you know, you really have to be on your A-game with someone like him who's a total vet. Um, But on the other hand, he comes in, he knows his lines, he knows exactly what he's doing. Blocking is really easy for him to figure out. So, um, you know, on the day when he's there, um, he's like this sort of like, uh, you know, wandering shogun who comes into town and just like does the job and gets in and gets out. But he also, what's great about Ron is he has so much experience, so much talent that he can take like the smallest scene and somehow twist it in such a way that it's uniquely his, in a way that I wasn't expecting. Because, for instance, when I when I first met Ron, and when I first um, started talking to him about the character, I thought I thought of like Ron's other performances where he's really bigger than life and he's he's really tearing up the scene. And so when Ron started and he went completely 180 degrees the other direction and really downplayed it and was very kind of grounded, that threw me for a minute. And um, and I had to readjust and realize, okay, he's doing something that I have not seen him do a lot of. And he just, he really kind of grounded the film in a nice way because the film does dip back and forth between reality and fantasy. And he was this great anchor in addition to being the best friend of the main character. So it was just... Um, it took a minute, but once I got in, in sync with Ron, I realized he was like our secret weapon. I mean, he was really fantastic. Now, I remember the scene uh, in the diner and the last shot where he takes the, the, the bite out of the piece of bacon. It's a great scene. And, and I'm looking at that going, now, was that decided beforehand? Did they ad lib that? What does Charles do? Does he say, love it, but let's get a safety without it? The, uh, the script actually calls for him to bite the bacon. Like, there's, there's actually it, that, that's called out in the script because I thought it would be a nice punctuation to the scene. But Ron added an additional moment, which is totally Ron's, which is um, there's, a, there's a bit of an ad lib at the end when originally I think the scene was supposed to end with them just sort of like, oh, okay, well, that happened. And then Josh added this extra bit where he said, it's a wonder you're not married, Pete. And then Ron did this kind of like shrug like, Almost like, yeah, you're right. It's, it's no, no surprise. And that little, tiny little thing of Ron's was actually him sort of like responding to the end of the take. Like, that's, that, was a, that was a good take. You know, that wasn't too bad. But it was so perfect the way he did that we used it as like the button to the scene. Because it's almost like Pete's character saying, yeah, you know, you're right. I'm kind of screwed up too. And that's, so, that's, what great actors, that's what great actors do. Absolutely. And we, that, we shot like half the day at that location in that, in that diner and every single take both Josh and Ron, cause Josh comes from a really strong improvisational background. So between the two of them, we had a lot to play with. I mean, they're in, on the, on the Blu-ray, the, the scene is almost twice as long than the original cut in the deleted scene section. And you get to really see them both go back and forth and, and really kind of mix it up, which is, which is great to see. Now we should point out this is the, the Blu-ray has more stuff than the DVD does, so you get you you really do get uh, added value, which is something that you know a lot about. And uh, just to give people a little background on the film, I I am uh, I would be at a loss to tell them that it is anything other than a a thriller, a genre thriller with all kinds of uh, really interesting twists and turns, and uh, obviously in and out of reality. Um, which I think is a great thing because it's it's completely unpredictable, and you watch it, and you really don't you don't know how to put the pieces together. It keeps you very very much guessing, and you do a great job with that. So, it, it, from the words of the director itself, how would you explain the plot of this movie to our listeners so that they uh, uh, aren't completely thrown by whatever I would throw them? Right. Well, there's a, there's a few different ways to pitch the story, but the, the most basic way is to say it's about a character named Aiden who's a crime scene photographer in Detroit who has really seen a lot of uh, terrible things in his life, and especially on this particular uh, job. 
and it's taken its toll on him. And he sort of retreated it retreated into this sort of world of fantasy of sex and violence of wanting to be a hero, wanting to save the world, wanting to like win the girl and all these things. And these fantasies have begun to leak into his reality. And, and he's starting to kind of lose his sense of, of Aiden, the man with Aiden, the fictional hero in his brain or in his imagination. And, and now as he's, as that stuff starts to leak out, we start to see how it impacts his real life. So that is a really kind of fumbled way to explain the, 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 the basic elements. Better than I would have done. But it's, it's, you know, it's, it, that is the, the essence of it. But for me personally, and I've been told not to sell the film like this, it's a dysfunctional romance. That's how I see the film. <laughs> and and, and it, it, that is kind of what, what I, I really locked in on when, when we were working on the script. Um, at the time, I was going through kind of a, a pretty devastating breakup. And so I used a lot of that stuff and threw that into the relationship in the film. And it really helped ground it for me emotionally in a way that it was beyond sort of a typical, say, 80s canon thriller with you know charles bronson or something like that where it wasn't like a, a that much of a vigilante story it was about a guy who's really twisted really kind of damaged and how he reacts to both crime in on his job and love with this kind of accidental romance that happens in the film um ultimately this all boils down to an, an interesting character study like that for me that's the core of it but you know when you when you design the posters and when you make the trailers you do have to kind of skew it a bit towards thriller because that's what seems to get people to get interested in it. Right. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> well, talk talk about uh talk about directing. I mean, your first film, obviously, you are you are no novice to this business, but it's always a different thing when you finally step behind the camera and you're the go-to guy and everybody's looking at you. You're the guy who's got to pull the trigger. You're the guy who's got to say yes or no. Um was it uh were did you were you as prepared as you felt you were or uh, did the production throw you any curveballs? Oh, tons of curveballs. Um, but look, there's there's two ways to look at it. One is that I've had a lot of experience working on the sets of other filmmakers. So I've gotten to observe them and how they handle certain dips, different types of problems. And that helped a lot. I mean, I, I felt like the one thing I, I had on this film was um, a sense of confidence in what I was doing. Even if I, what I was doing wasn't always right, I definitely believed in what I was doing. So I was rarely at a loss for an answer if someone came up to me and they said, is it supposed to be red? Is it supposed to be big? Is it supposed to be left or right? I always had an answer because I felt I knew the type of film I was making. What I was maybe unprepared for was the uh, shooting in Detroit was was a bit of a challenge for sure. Um, it was a great location, um, very photographic, um, but tricky uh, because it's it's very kind of spread out and we were always – it seemed like we we're always doing these company moves because there's so many locations in the script. And you may think that's not that big of a deal when you have to move all that cast and crew, sometimes on the same day, uh, that wears you down and you lose time. And time is, is like your greatest enemy when you're, especially like on an indie film like this. And you have to get so much of the movie done every single day. Time is your enemy. And I, that is maybe I should, I should have been a bit more prepared for that. And next time I, I think I will be, um, to not leave so much to chance because again, coming from a documentary background, I sort of like the, the, you know, the happy accidents the, mm. the, the magic that occurs when you don't have a scripted out entirely, or you don't have a storyboard or previsd or whatever you, you allow reality to kind of like get its hooks in and it gives you, it gives you sort of like this funkiness that life has that you don't always get in more sort of formal movies. So I think next time I'll be a bit more, um, I think on the ball on that side of it, um, 
I think. We'll see. <laughs> is, is, is there an example you can give of you being in a situation, you thought to yourself, wow, X does it this way. I like how he did that. I'm going to try to incorporate that into my own style, whether it's a documentary director you remember working with or for, or a, or a, you know, a feature film director. Where you go, I like how he dealt with this. I'm going to deal with this that way. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that was very helpful uh, when it came to directing the actors. Um, the way I see Ridley, the way Ridley Scott, the, the director that I, I, I've worked with quite a bit, uh, the way I see the way Ridley directs actors is very simple. He, where Ridley gets detailed with the actors is in pre-production, during rehearsals. That's where they sit down around a table and they really break the script down. They break the characters down. They really get under the hood of the movie. But on the set, it's super simple. It's very basic. It's bigger, smaller, faster, slower. These very basic terms in terms of finding the slight nuance of each take. And um, that's what I try to do here. I really tried to let, once we were on location, once we were on the set, let the actors be the actors and not micromanage their performances. And that, I thought, first of all, bought me more time to work on camera, lighting, technical sides of things, but it allowed them to invest themselves into the characters and be humans and not just like puppets. And I think sometimes directors treat actors like puppets, and I, I'm very much against that. And um, so that's one, I think that was the big thing, having seen other directors work, was like learning just to let the actors give them their space, give them support, and just keep the direction and the adjustments very, very simple. And on the Blu-ray, there's some behind-the-scenes stuff. It's pretty warts and all. Uh, you okay with that? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I'm okay with it because, I mean, I, I approved it to go on the disc. But um, I, um, that's what I want to see in other directors. Uh, and I don't always get to. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I get, I'm allowed the warts and all treatment with other filmmakers. But um, I, I thought, you know what? I, there, there was one time. I probably shouldn't mention the director. It wasn't Ridley. It was another director that I've worked with. And we had a, a rough cut of the documentary where he just lost his shit on set. I mean, he just, he, can I say that, by the way? Uh, uh, yeah, we'll leave it in. He, he, he really lost his temper. And, um, and we had it in the rough cut of the documentary. And I thought it was great because it showed this honest moment yeah. um, that it, it, it's, not, it's not meant to put him in a bad light or show that he has a temper. It's meant to show this is how he reacted to this particular challenge. This challenge was overcome this particular way. And then here's the happy ending to that is the final scene. I find that to be fascinating. Not so-and-so is a genius. This scene is amazing. I'm sick of like all that sycophantic, you know, love fest stuff. So we had that rough cut submitted to the studio and the director. And, and he approached me afterwards and he said, you know, I really don't feel comfortable with that being in there. And I explained why I put it in there. And he said, yeah, but that's not you up there, is it? And I said, yeah, you know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. It's out. And I took it out as soon as he said that. Hmm. But that you know, full circle comes back to Crave when I had the moment in the behind the scenes where I lose my temper on set. And I thought, you know, it's, I'm not like focusing my temper on a person. It's more on the situation. So I thought, that's fine. You know, it's not like some knockdown drag out you know, fight between people over ego or over politics. It was about the frustration of the scene as it was unfolding, given this, all the problems we were having on the shoot. Well, the, the film is Crave. It is on DVD and on Blu-ray from uh, Phase 4. And wait, 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 we're not saying what? goodbye yet. There's one no, more no, no, thing. No, 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 no. I was, well, fine. I Go, ask him another thing. Go ahead. It was, it was going to be the last question. Go ahead. Are you Do done? It. No, no. I'm, Are you I'm not done? Fit. I thought you Go were ahead. wrapping it up. 
No, I, w- I was going to carry on to other issues, other Jeez. other issues, you're embarrassing me other in front questions. Of Charles. Charles, big director now, you're embarrassing us. I know. Okay, okay. Well, you do your thing, then I'll ask my question. Well, I was going to say before we move on, because I want to know what he's going to do next, and we want to talk about some of the other you know DVD stuff that he's still doing. But I was going to just say, give a big plug. It is Crave. It is on DVD and on Blu-ray. Beautifully uh, shot, by the way. This is no, you really should well shot. you really should check this out on Blu-ray. It's gorgeous. It was Thank so you. well shot. It's so beautiful. And now, your, the, uh, the your DP, is... William Eubank. Yes, Will Eubank. Really good. Extremely talented fellow. Um, he um, He's a director in his own right. He directed a film called Love a few years ago for Angels and Airwaves. And then he has a new film out that played at Sundance, or yeah, played at this last Sundance called The Signal with Lawrence Fishburne. So, uh, yeah, he's he's a great director and he's an amazing DP. And actually, we're, we're talking about my next film that he's going to hopefully shoot, schedule permitting. Uh, that he's, he's really excited about it. So, I mean, I love working with Will. He's, he's great because... Um, he, he he like me sort of like allows the like the subject matter to kind of breathe and you embrace what's there you don't try to force it to become something that it isn't and again having a great location like detroit um it wasn't hard to make it look great what mm-hmm. what will brought to it was the the sophistication of the lenses of the, the you know the the, the the subtleties of exposure like we, that's where we were sort of talking about um yeah. And I, and I would, yeah, when we first started, he said, you know, what movies do you have in mind? Like, what other films are you thinking about? I, I mentioned a few. I mentioned, like, uh, Black Rain, The Game, um, probably a little bit of Fight Club. I mentioned in terms of lens choices. I think I talked mostly Fincher, Kubrick, and Ridley. Kind of like the three names, probably a lot of directors. <laughs> because, you know, those they're, they're great. You know, they have, they have amazing eyes, you know. So, but once we got there, we embraced more of a, of a documentary approach, which I think helped us in terms of production and getting it all done on time, but also it gave it a, a life that it would have been probably flat if we just put everything on sticks and just kept everything, you know, static. Were, are you done with your last question, Mark? I haven't asked it. Go ahead, ask it. I thought that was your last question. Huh? Okay, I have well, a question. Ahead. Okay, now here's the question. Okay. Yes. Last time Charles was on, last time you were on, yes. I hearkened back to the time that I was over your beautiful home yes, and uh, it was a, a New Year's Eve party. Yes. And downstairs, there is a room. Yes, that's right. And the room, which I believe you call the uh, a geek room, yes. is decked out in the most unbelievably awesome movie memorabilia you have ever seen ever. This is truly somebody who loves movies, has collected great stuff, and I was absolutely... In fact, I stole some things, I'll be honest. <laughs> I was wondering what happened. I was wondering where that stuff went. I was wearing a very large coat, and uh, yeah. that was the reason why. Okay. okay. Now, last time we talked to you, I said to you, what is the most uh, valuable, memorable, personally important thing to you in that room, knowing how great that room is? And uh, I, I just heard before we started that you were disappointed in your answer last time we talked. So I'm going to give you another chance to answer that question. <laughs> well, you know, it's changed a bit since you were last here, too. There were a couple of new things, a couple of little things left. Um, I mean, I have like some original props from, say, Battlestar Galactica, the the, the new TV series that I really like. Um, I have a, a screen accurate stormtrooper helmet from Star Wars. I have, you know, cool things here and there. But but to me, the, and this is sort of timely. Tomorrow is the 30th anniversary of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom opening, and in in the geek room, I have this huge New York subway poster of Temple of Doom that has like all like the venues it was playing at. Awesome. And, it's a different format of a poster you don't usually see. And I have like this kind of very sort of like almost Indian looking frame. You know, it looks like it's from Temple of Doom. Um, I got that on eBay for, it was like maybe 40 or $50. And it was completely sh- shredded, ripped. It was like, it, it looked like it had been thrown in the garbage. 
And I had this company called um, La Magerie, who I don't know if they're still in business, but they restored it to like absolute vintage cherry perfection. It was absolutely perfect now. So that's that has like a, an interesting story for me because it's like I it's almost like I found this little thing in the trash and nurtured it back to health. And now it's like this beautiful it's, it's beautiful artwork. And and plus I'm a big Temple of Doom uh, defender slash apologist. Uh, yes. Yes. I am too. I, I was an usher at the Man's National Theater when it opened. I had seen it four times at private screenings by the time it actually opened. I saw it probably a hundred times by the time it ended its run. I can sing Anything Goes in Mandarin Chinese thanks Absolutely. to having seen that film. Good so was way well long Absolutely, yes. There we go. <laughs> We'll do. We'll do that sometime. We'll do an act. Uh, we will do that, uh, yeah. Charles. So you are. You do have another film uh, that you're thinking about doing. Obviously, uh, probably can't uh, give us too many details on it. I assume. I mean, the, the, the thing of it is, the, the truth is, there's a couple. Um, I'm actually attached to three um, possible films. Uh, I mean, they are they are films, but I mean, in terms of like the viability of them actually being made, I'm not 100 percent sure on. But each one is in a different stage of of development or pre production. Um, but there's one that I'm really excited about. Um, I think last time we spoke, we might have talked about one, which was this Philip K. Dick adaptation that I was attached to. It's called I Hope I Shall Arrive Soon. And that is a very big, ambitious film. So it's taken a while to get that going. We've gotten some great response to the script, some really great meetings. But I almost feel like I need to do something in between Crave and that first, just to kind of like, you know, build a bridge of credibility to um, arrive. So. Um, there's a couple sort of medium-sized movies I'm looking at right now, and one is really, I think, very viable to be shooting this year. Um, Great, and it's a science fiction film, science fiction horror film. And once the you know once Penn has put the paper on that and the deal is official, I'll be happy to tell the world about it. But right now we're still negotiating. But I'm super excited about it. It's kind of a it's kind of a throwback to. Spielberg movies actually it's kind of an 80s vintage film that uh, I grew up with but with a very kind of dark modern twist um, which will be interesting to explore and uh, you know you've done obviously you're still doing the DVD thing and uh, I I think the one that's really lit up all of our listeners is uh, Twin Peaks which that's that's your baby Uh, is there anything you can tell I mean we we flipped out everybody went nuts as soon as that announcement was made the Facebook page lit up I lit up I, I did laps around the house um, Mark, uh, Mark I, I, I watched Wade do laps around the house. Yeah. Uh, what What can you tell us about uh, about Twin Peaks? Is it going to be as awesome as everybody expects it to be? I, I think so. I think it's actually it's it's far surpassed my expectations. Frankly, um, seven years ago, we put out what's called the Gold Box DVD, right. which was just the series, the pilot, like two versions of the pilot, and then, and then a ton of extras. This time. We have most of those extras. Then we have most of all the previous, re- previously released extras from past, like say, like the old Artisan season one release, the CBS season two release. Basically, anything from Twin Peaks video history, we have tried to call and put together into like this massive archive. But more importantly than any of that is the long-awaited debut of the deleted scenes from Fire Walk with Me, which fans have been waiting for for about oh, 20, yeah. twenty-two years now. Um, Ken Ross, who's the, the the big the big boss at CBS DVD, worked for years with David Lynch, um, trying to get this deal made. It took forever, and it was it's a very complicated deal, but he managed to pull it off, and we are now finally going to be able to unveil that 
after all these years. I know Twin Peaks fans are, are really excited about this. I was blown away when I when I saw him. There's like 90 minutes of deleted scenes wow. that that David cut together himself. And uh, the first time I saw it, I was just you know my jaw was on the ground because I. It's almost like you're getting a whole new mini season of Twin Peaks now. Twenty over you know over two de- decades after the pa- after the fact, you're actually getting to see those characters again. Oh, um, I, I cannot wait. Yeah, it's it's a really fantastic set, and there's a whole bunch of new stuff as well. We did this great sit down um, with Lynch and Ray Wise and Grace Zabriskie and Cheryl Lee, who are all the actors who play the Palmer family, and we have David interviewing them in character, like they oh, are playing great. themselves as the, as though they are you know existing 25 years after the story of the show. Um, and then there's a, a follow up with David and the actors talking about you know making the series and the movie. Um, it's yeah, it's tons of really really fantastic material i'm incredibly proud of this set and i can't wait for people to see the the final result we're still we're still working on it we're still doing final you know tweaks to it but it's coming together incredibly well did you spend any time up at the up at the lynch house oh yeah yeah, yeah we had a few meetings up there uh, my wife used to work for lynch so I, I i know the house well david holds court he tells stories before you know a whole day has gone by yeah no and there was one there got there's one story i wish i had on tape that maybe he'll tell someday about something about this project that was it took probably like an, a solid hour just to get that story out, but it was so entertaining. We were just all like laughing hysterically. Um, yeah, it, it was. It's always fun going up there, you know. And and it's it's really it's easy when you have a director like David who's who has a very clear vision about what he wants. Yeah. You know? And so basically, you go to him as a fan. You say, "Well, I think I would like this, or the fans would like that." And what do you think? And sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes you get to appeal it, and he'll say he'll finally say yes. So it's a it's at least he cares, you know. So this box set is. I think very much can be Lynch approved from top to bottom. Well, that is awesome. Mark, did you have anything, uh, anything else to ask before we, we wrap it out? No, I feel uh, uh, a little proprietary towards Charles because yes. we were there. We've been with Charles hoping he'd get to make his movie. So proud of him that he made his movie. You're, you're going so to ask for a piece of his back end, aren't you? You're going to ask for a piece of his back end, aren't you? That's very sexual, Wade. Okay. And I don't appreciate that. Well, there and, you go. Uh, I'm straight. I don't know about you. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, is that Charles? Congratulations! Absolutely, this yeah. is success that is so well earned and is only the beginning. Well, you know, I feel bad because when we last spoke, you asked me if you guys could do commentary on the Crave DVD. Oh, that's right. And, and I really, I was not joking. I really wanted to do it. Unfortunately, the, the Phase Four, the distributor, you know, we had a really tight production schedule on the extras. We had to throw everything together on a disc in about three weeks. We had three weeks to do from beginning to end. I mean, literally three weeks of starting to open boxes, pull tapes out, edit, throw back. So it was like, unfortunately, maybe for like the 10th anniversary edition of Crave, you guys can come back and do a, like a retrospective commentary. You know what? You do a commentary along with Josh Lawson that is a perfectly good substitute. So we well, we, we defer to that. I miss I miss your, your lovable bickering that you, that you <laughs> engage in. Well... But, but the- the other thing is Mark's actually been to my house, so he does have a bit more, you know, of his connection to me. Yeah. Wait, you have, to, you have to come out to the house, like, in a social setting, not just for podcasts. You got it. We'll do that. <laughs> well, Charles, congratulations again. It has, it has been a privilege to, uh, to have been with you for so long, and uh, you are a longtime friend of the podcast. We appreciate that, and uh, we are there for you anything, anytime you need us to be. And uh, with that, Mark, I think we are done with the podcast, with this week's show. We are. We are. All right, Charles, thank you. We, once again, it is Crave. It is out on DVD and Blu-ray from Phase 4. We urge everybody, get the Blu-ray. It's got more goodies. We'll see you next week.